Father God, thank you for drawing us into your house of worship this morning. May we join our hearts together with our brothers and sisters. May we be able to put all the distractions of the week previous and the week ahead away from us and be able to focus our attention on you, Father, what you've done for us and the sending forth your Son into the world to die for us and to give us the opportunity to spend eternity in heaven with you. May we be so grateful and mindful of what that means in our life. And may we be able to focus this morning on hearing your word, what you would have to say to us and how we should respond to that word. And may we praise you. And with everything that we do and we say this morning, we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well... Question for you. How many of you like HGTV? Oh, I see some hands go up. It's a show on, te- it's a show on television. It's Home and Garden Channel. And I know my wife likes that show. She especially likes the one called Beachfront Property. She likes to watch that one. It's not my favorite show by any means, but I do have to admit I like those shows that deal with houses that get renovated. And it's really amazing sometimes what they do when they go in and In a very short matter of time, they completely renovate a house and make it look brand new. There's one that's called Extreme, or used to be called Extreme Home Makeover, and it was pretty dramatic changes. um, I think it's really amazing that what what they can do for a short period of time. But as, as amazing as that is, it's much more amazing to see what God can do in the life of a person. The transformation that God brings about and people's lives is truly miraculous. As you know, we've been studying encounters over the last few weeks that people have had with Jesus. And today we're going to look at an encounter, or actually a series of encounters, that the man Peter has with Jesus. And the transformation that comes about in Peter's life because of these encounters. We're going to be in John chapter 21, if you want to be turning there. As I began putting this lesson together and I started in John 21, I quickly found that I was going back to a lot of other scriptures to really get a a full encompassing view of this man's Peter's life. So we're going to jump around quite a bit, but we'll start in John chapter 21 and we'll end in John chapter 21. I've entitled this lesson Extreme Makeover Peter Edition. It will be a character study on the life of Peter. We'll not have time to do a complete study, but I want to outline some highlights of his life and what we can learn from his encounters with Jesus. So what I want to do is begin in John chapter 21, and I want to read verses 15 through 19. But before I read it, I want you to have an image of the scene. I want you to picture in your mind the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Those of you who have been in Israel should be able to do that very easily. It's early morning. The sun is coming up over the horizon. There are eight men sitting around a campfire near the shore. There are a couple of boats beached up on the shore. A few feet up on the shore lies a large fishing net full of fish. A record catch of fish. There's a smell of fresh fish in the air. The popping sound that the campfire makes stands out as the men quietly finish their breakfast. Now, you have that image in your mind. Now, let's read verses 15 through 19. John says, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Now, if you were a new Christian and you haven't read much of the Bible, you would probably not have a clue what was going on or what just happened here. The scene wouldn't make much sense to you. So what I want to do is something that the movie producers do sometimes, and that is to start with a scene towards the end of a movie and then take you back and flash back to some earlier times to bring you up to speed, and then the context becomes very clear and we can finish the story. So we're going to leave this scene and with Jesus and Peter and six other disciples on the beach, and we're going to flash back three years about to turn over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, beginning in verse... 35, this is the beginning of their relationship. John tells us in John chapter 1, 35, again the next day, John was standing with the two of the disciples. Who, this is John the Baptist, by the way. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and he said, Behold, the Son of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak, was following him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which translated Peter. So here you see the beginning of the relationship of Peter and Jesus. Now Peter, as you know, was a fisherman. He was partners with James and John in a fishing business. Fishing then, as it is now, is a hard business. It required a lot of hard work. It was not for the weak. Peter would have been what some today would have called a man's man. He was rugged, strong. We see that his brother Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. And when he met Jesus, he immediately goes and brings his brother See Simon to him, and they, he, he tells him, you know, this is the Messiah. This is the, we found him, and he brings P Peter to him. Of course, his name was Simon then. He meets Jesus, and Jesus was a stranger to him. He's never met him before. And what's the first thing he does? He changes his name. He, he tells Cephas, you, you are son of Jonah, but you're, you're now Peter. He changes his name. We're, later, we're told later that Peter means rock. Now turn over to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We're going to flash forward a little bit. We find a scene that's going to happen on Lake Gennesaret. This is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. It was also called Lake Tiberias. All the same lake. Luke chapter 5, the first 11 verses. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. 
Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, up to this point, Peter was just kind of hanging around. This is the point where he officially becomes a disciple. We are told that he's less, he leaves everything and he follows Christ. Sometimes I think I take this too casually. Peter, along with all his brothers, his brother Andrew, were men of modest means from Bethsaida, Bethsaida and they left their fishing business, everything they've known to follow this man that they've only known for just a very short period of time. We don't know much about Peter's wife, but we know he was married. Uh, the Bible has, there's two different verses in the New Testament that, that tell us this. One was in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, where Paul argues that the apostles had a right to take along a believing wife on their travels. And he refers to Cephas, like Cephas, which would have been Peter. We also know that he had a mother-in-law because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. So, you have Peter along with the other disciples, leaving everything. They're going with Jesus day by day, every day, being taught individually as well as listening to him teaching to the masses. They saw amazing miracles. They saw him heal people. They saw him drive out demons. They saw him perform miracles and feeding the multitudes. And they saw his, pow his power over nature. One of those miracles, we can't go through all of Peter's life. So I'm just hitting some highlights. One miracle over nature we see in Matthew 14, if you want to turn there. Matthew 14, we'll read verses 22 through 29. Beginning in verse 22 of Matthew 14, Matthew says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and it was evening, he was there alone, but the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 28 says, Peter said to him, Lord... If it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. Now you know the rest of the story. Peter looks around. He hears the waves and the storm and feels the wind. And he becomes frightened and he starts to sink when he takes his eyes off the Lord. But Jesus reaches out and pulls him back up. And he says, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? So you're beginning to get the picture of this man, Peter. He was one of the first to always act out, one of the first to speak out, to lash out. In this case, he was the first to jump out of the boat. There's another time when Peter is first. Turn over a couple pages to Matthew 16. Look at verse 13 of chapter 16. Matthew tells us, he says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, 
Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So here we see that Peter's the first to speak up and confess that he really knew who Christ really was. And Jesus prophetically tells us of a special role in the next verse. Look at verse 18. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Peter had a special relationship with Jesus too. And he was what theologians call the inner circle of Jesus. Along with James and John, they were the only three to see Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were the only three to witness the transfiguration. They got a glimpse of Jesus' majesty. They got to hear God's voice directly from heaven. Peter and John were the ones that were given the task of preparing the Passover meal. There's no doubt that Peter had a very special relationship with Jesus. But in spite of all this teaching, in spite of all being eyewitnesses to all these miracles, in spite of all the firsthand examples of Jesus' love and compassion, in spite of all this, being in his inner circle, Peter's also known by his blunders. Sometimes he just didn't get it. Look on down in Matthew 16 to verse 21. Matthew 16, verse 21 says, From the time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and, and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day, Peter took Him aside and He began to rebuke Him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But He turned and He said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So here we see an example of a time when right after being the first to speak out and confess Christ, he shows his immaturity. He's strongly rebuked by Christ. He calls him a stumbling block. He said, Satan, get behind me. Think about that, how that would linger in Peter's life, being called Satan, get behind me. That was a fairly strong rebuke. I bet later on, he, after Christ's resurrection, he probably thinks to himself, I can't believe I said that to the Lord. Fast forward another year or so, and we near the end of Christ's ministry. Turn over to, to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We'll look at verses 6 through 9. This is in the upper room, right before His crucifixion. They're in the upper room, and during the Last Supper, Jesus gets up and He starts going around and washing the disciples' feet. And verse 5 says... He poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Verse 6 says, So he came to Simon Peter. He, Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered said to him, What I do you do not realize, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Never. Jesus answered him and said, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So what Simon Peter say then, he says, Okay, Lord, then wash my, not just my feet, but my hands and my head. Wash it all. Give me a bath. We see the impulse of Peter, again, speaking before thinking it through. Again, there's a, no mention of the other disciples speaking out and questioning the Lord. It's, it's always Peter. Now turn over to Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, sometime during this time together in the upper room, the disciples got to arguing about which one is the greatest. 
Jesus takes the opportunity to gently rebuke them and teach them about what it means to be a servant leader. This probably takes place right before the foot washing. And in verse 31, Jesus says to Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when you, once you have been turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now listen to Peter's response in verse 33. He says, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said that with conviction, I'm sure. In one of the other Gospels, I think it's Matthew, we're told that Peter said, even though all may fall away, I won't. I don't care what the rest of them do. I won't do it. That's when Jesus turns to him in verse 34. He says, Peter, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times that you even know me. Now, the scene flashes forward a little more to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has already gone ahead and betrayed him. We're still in Luke 22, down to around verse 47. Tells us that Judas comes in with a crowd. The Roman soldiers, the Jewish leaders are with him. There to arrest him. Verse 50 says, And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Who do you think it was? It was Peter. We're told that in one of the other Gospels that it was Peter. Jesus stops him. He miraculously heals the man's ear. These are just a few examples of Peter's misplaced zeal. But what he's most remembered for, unfortunately, is his denial of Christ that Jesus alluded to in the upper room, which comes next. And so Jesus is arrested. He's taken away. Matthew tells us in his account that all the disciples fled. But Peter and another disciple followed at a distance. Verse 54 of Luke 22 tells us that. It says, having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. Let's go ahead and read down through verse 62 because this is the account of his denial. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looked intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You're the one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I'm not. After being about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man's with him. He's, he was a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Verse 61 says, The Lord turned and looked at Peter. I don't know exactly where this took place. It was somewhere like in the courtyard and Jesus was within sight of Peter and their eyes met and he immediately looked at him and he remembered the words of the Lord. Verse 61 says, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And 60, verse 62 says, and He went out and he wept bitterly. So we see this man, Peter, boldly proclaimed that he would die with Christ. No matter what the rest of them would do, I'd, I would never flee. But he did. He denied him. He fled. Not once, not twice, but three times. Unfortunately, this is one of the main things Peter's remembered for. And I think, personally, sometimes I think I'm too hard on people like Peter and Thomas. Peter's known by his denials. Thomas is known by his doubt. But I wonder what we would have done had we been in the same situation. But you get the picture of this man outgoing, energetic, enthusiastic. He goes all out, sometimes speaking before he thinks, acting impulsively many times. But he is 
someone, a man of action. He doesn't sit back and wait to follow other people's leads. He's a man of action. He was a doer, not a sit back and let other people handle it kind of guy. He's a special man. He's called out by the Lord himself. But he's also an ordinary man from a small town with a occupation as a fisherman. But he's been spending the last three years traveling with Christ, learning directly from the Lord himself. Now flash forward a little more. Jesus was arrested. He's been tried. He's been crucified. He's already risen from the dead. He's appeared to Mary. He's appeared to Peter. He's appeared to the followers on the road to Emmaus. And then to the disciples who were gathered together in Jerusalem. He appeared to Thomas. And we're almost back to the scene we began with. Turn back to John chapter 21. Verse 3. This time, I don't know exactly how, many, how much time has passed, but put yourselves in the disciples' positions. They're hanging around. Jesus has appeared a few times to different people, but some time has gone by. They're not sure really what they're supposed to be doing. They had obeyed what Jesus had said to go ahead to Galilee and wait for Him. And that's where they were. They're back in their home turf of Capernaum. That's where we find them in chapter 21, verse 3. Simon Peter looks at the other disciples and what's he say in verse 3? He says, I'm going fishing. I'm going a fishing. I think in all, seven of them went. The other disciples said, we're going too. Probably all the ones that were fishermen went with him. So there's seven of them in total that have gone fishing. I'm not sure what was going through their minds. They could have been thinking, we're hungry, we need some fish. Or maybe they needed some money. That's what they did before they knew Christ. Or maybe it was just a way of getting out into the water and clearing your head and just thinking about all the things that have transpired. Maybe some or all of that is going on. So most of the disciples then are out there fishing. This event is recorded in John 21, first 14 verses. I'm not going to read all of that, but just summarize it. You know the story. They begin fishing. They fish all night. They don't catch anything again. Sometimes I wonder how good a fisherman they were. <laughs> There's a lot of times where they weren't catching anything. But that's, that's what happens to me too. When day breaks and the sun's just starting to come up, verse 4 tells us that Jesus was standing on the beach. They didn't know who he was at this point, but he hollers at them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. For some strange reason, they obey the stranger. What could it hurt? Verse 6 tells us that that's when it happened. As soon as they threw their nets over, they feel the weight, the nets getting heavy. Probably the boat probably tilts. You got two or three guys on the same side of the boat. It probably leans way over. The, the nets get really heavy. John's mind was taken back to a time when this has happened before. This is not the first time this has happened. And John turns to Peter and says, It's the Lord. It's the Lord. His mind was taken back to a time when he has witnessed this before. So he whispers to Peter, it's the Lord. That's all it took for Peter. What's Peter do? He jumps out of the water and he swims a hundred yards to shore as fast as he can. The other disciples are not going to give up that fish. They, they drag that fish in and they come to shore dragging all the fish. So the other, others fall along. Jesus is already on the shore. He's got a campfire going. He tells them to bring some fish over to him. Verse 11 tells us that Peter drugged the whole net of fish, all 153 of them, over to Jesus. Yeah, someone counted the fish. 153 of them. That's over 20 fish per person. I don't know if they had any limits like we do, but that's, that's a lot of fish. They cooked the fish. They ate breakfast with Jesus. For some reason, I picture this as a fairly quiet meal. I don't hear a lot of laughter. I especially don't hear statements like the last time they ate together in the upper room. I don't hear them arguing over who's the greatest. They're now getting a sense of who 
the greatest is. He's right before them cooking their breakfast like a servant. So that brings us up to where we were at the beginning. I want to read this again. John 21, verse 15 through 19. You have this clearly in your head, this man, who, who this man Peter is now. And Jesus in verse 15 says, At when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He begins by calling him what? Simon. Now, Jesus had already changed his name to Cephas or Peter, right? Why does he call him Simon? So I don't know if, it's, if there's any importance in that or not, but many of the commentators think that he's calling him by his, his earlier name to refer him back to his old nature, to bring to mind the fact that he wasn't acting like Peter the rock. He had been acting more like the natural man, Simon. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? I expect that when Jesus said, do you love me more than these, that he made a motion with his hand. And I'm not sure exactly what he might have been motioning to. There's two things that he could have been motioning to. One is, he could have been motioning to the fish and the nets and the fishing paraphernalia. And he could have been saying, do you love me more than these? This is your old life. Do you love me more than fishing and and all of this stuff that's been going on in your life for the last several years. Do you love me more than that? That's one example. And that's, there's many very, a lot of reputable Bible scholars and teachers that, that hold to that position. But there's another one. And the one that I probably would tend to side with was that he pointed to the other disciples and said, Do you love me more than these men? Do you love me more than all these other men? Now, if that's the one that... Jesus is talking about, then that would have been a very stinging rebuke to Peter. Why would he say that? What would Peter have done to bring up that rebuke from Jesus? Well, we looked at it. We read about it before. This was the man who said, If all the others fall away, not I. If need be, Jesus, I will die with you. I will go to death with you. This would have been a very stinging reminder of his pride and his failure in denying he even knew him. Three different times. Now there's an interesting play on words used in this encounter. When Jesus asks Peter if he loves him more than these, he uses the word derived from agapeo, agape love. He says, do you agape love me? That's that unconditional love. Peter, when he responds, says, yes, you know that I phileo you. I don't agape you, I phileo you. That's the brotherly love, the word for brotherly love. Why did Peter use this term instead of the one that Jesus used probably because of his recent failure he's kind of in his own mind kind of disqualified himself from loving Jesus that way because he's already proven that he doesn't he's failed him he so he uses the lesser of the words Jesus responds feed my lambs Jesus uses the analogy he's used many times in scripture referring to his followers as sheep and here he said doesn't just use sheep he used lambs this would be the immature Christians the weak the new Babes in Christ. I think of the scriptures that talk about 
new Christians being babes in Christ needing to be, needing to be fed the milk of the word, solid milk. Jesus asked Peter again, he, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This time, Jesus drops the more than these. That's made his, he's made his point there. He just says, do you love me? He uses the higher word, that agape word again. Again, phileo is used by, by Peter when he responds. Yes, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. I phileo you. Jesus responds similar as before. He says, tend my sheep. The word tend is a different word. It's similar. It's meant to shepherd or to lead. And he uses the word sheep here instead of lamb, which would refer to all of the followers, all, all the believers. He's being called to shepherd, to lead all of the flock of God. Then the Lord, to Peter's shame, he asked him for the third time. He says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? This time, though, he doesn't use the word agape, love. He uses the phileo word. He uses the word that Peter's used. Phileo, this must have crushed Peter. Peter's probably thinking, the Lord's now, he's questioning whether I, I even love him at all. He, he's reducing his words from agape to phileo. He's, he's, he's got doubts that I even love him. And there's no doubt that his asking the question for the third time is bringing up all the pain of the threefold denial that Peter had just done. So Peter responds in humility, appealing strongly to the Lord's power and of omniscience. He says, Lord, you know all things. And I can bet that Peter emphasized the word all. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. He's referring to his omniscience. And Jesus repeats again, feed my sheep. So the question is, why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus put Peter on the spot like this in front of all the other disciples? Some say this was Peter's restoration back into the fold. He had denied Christ. He was in need of restoration to be back, brought back into the fold. I don't think that was it. I mean, at least not in its entirety. I think Peter and the Lord had already crossed that bridge. If you go back in Scripture and you read the accounts after the resurrection, you'll find that the Lord, after he appeared to Mary, who did he appear to next? He appeared to Peter. All, several Gospels accounts talk about him appearing to Peter. Now, we're not told what went on in that meeting, but he had already appeared to Peter. Why do you think he appeared to Peter? I think he already brought Peter back in and made him aware that they still loved him and that that restoration had taken place. I think he's, he knows he's back into the fold, that he is one of God's sheeps. What happens here is a public restoration, not to bring Peter back into the fold, but a restoration to service and to leadership. And he's doing it in front of all the other disciples for a reason. He wants them to know as well that he is being restored to the service and to the leadership position. And this was done in a public setting for a reason. He wanted them to know. They didn't know. Remember, they don't know really what they're supposed to be doing right now. This is a precursor to the church being born. This was their instruction that he was giving them purpose. This was a group message as well as a personal one to Peter. They were over the past three years, the lambs and the sheep. Now he's telling them, you're the shepherd. Shepherd, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. He's restoring Peter to this position of leadership, but he also has a message for all of the disciples. I also don't think one can emphasize too much the importance of loving the Lord. The question Jesus asked Peter three times is, do you love me? And this is the question he asked each of us. 
Do you love me? This insinuates that Jesus is worthy of our love and not just worthy, but he demands it. It's a command. It's a prerequisite, a condition of being a true follower of the Lord. This example to me here is one that emphasizes the sincere, humble love Jesus desires. And that's what Peter has now. There's no hint anymore of boasting, of arrogance that he had. Peter is not the same man he was a few years ago. He's not even the same man he was a few weeks ago. He's a different man. Now Peter's story doesn't end here. He goes on to be that rock that Jesus foresaw. He became the leader of the church, not the pope as the Catholic Church would say. But he was instrumental in the foundation of the church. He's the one who preaches the first gospel message in chapter 2 of Acts on the day of Pentecost when the church was born. He's present um, when the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 8. He's the one who brought the gospel to Cornelius and to the Gentiles and uh, the Roman centurion in chapter 10 of Acts. We find him preaching boldly before the Sanhedrin. He heals a lame beggar. He was arrested, beaten, threatened, but he remained steadfast and courageous. He wrote two inspired letters, First and Second Peter. He spent time with John Mark, who went on to write the Gospel of Mark, mostly by Peter's recollections of the events. Peter wasn't perfect. He still made mistakes. But the calling on his life to, be, to serve was answered. And he served faithfully for many years, leading up to his martyrdom that Jesus had prophesied in verse 18 of our text. If you went on to read verse 18 and 19, you would find that he had prophesied that he was going to die a martyr's death. So Peter, knowing that he was going to be crucified, continued to serve faithfully all the way up until that point. So I know that a sermon or a lesson like this about all of these encounters, each one of them could be one in itself. And I ran through them very quickly, but I wanted you to get a full glimpse of the man all at one setting and then how his life was different, how it was changed, how all these encounters were used by the Lord to grow him into the person that he became. And I want us to end our time this morning by talking about some of the lessons, and there are, I'm sure there's several, and I've just picked out a few, that we can observe from this man's transformation. So I think I have four. The first one I wrote down was that Jesus patiently instructs and teaches. Patiently instructs and teaches. Psalms 32.8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Have you ever had a teacher that impacted your life? Have you ever had a teacher that was really just one of those special people who really took a concern for their students and really changed and helped become integral in their life? Well, Jesus is our supreme example of this. There's never ever been a teacher better or never will be a teacher better than the Lord himself. There were so many times when any other teacher would have given up on these disciples. And after their many mistakes and blunders, Jesus never got angry with them. He was always patient, always looking for opportunities to instruct and teach. There's several times in Scripture where Jesus is quoted as saying something to the disciples to the effect of, you, you still don't get it yet? I mean, he didn't. those were my words, not his. But that, that's what he said. They were with him day and night, and yet sometimes they just didn't get it. And he didn't get angry. He just patiently continued to teach and to train. He didn't get frustrated. That's comforting to me because I know that God must get frustrated with me at many times. He's more patient than the most loving earthly father ever could be. 
All of you who have raised kids know how, it are, how hard it is to be patient at times. The Lord is extremely patient with us. He's the epitome of patience. The second lesson I see from this is that Jesus forgives. And of course we all know that this goes without saying. Jesus is faithful in forgiveness. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Even though we may fail Him, He will never fail us. He's faithful to forgive us no matter what we do or what we've done. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's nothing we can do to make God turn His back on us. Once you are a child of God, and Peter was, you are an heir, a son, which may include discipline from time to time, like a son would receive, but he's always going to remain faithful no matter what you do. He's always going to be there for he be ready for you when you repent and to, he will restore you back to service. Peter experienced this firsthand. Can you imagine how devastated he probably was after he denied the Lord? How devastated must he have been? I, I was the one that said I'd die with you. And then he knows what happens after that. And Jesus forgave him and not only did he forgive him, he raised him up to be an instrumental leader in the church that would go on to change the world in a way that nothing ever else has, ever. No matter what we've done in the past, no matter where you are today in your life, if you repent and truly love the Lord like Peter did, He's going to restore you to productive service and ministry. The third lesson I see here is that Jesus sees us not as we are, but as we will become. The first time he saw Peter, he changed his name from Simon to Cephas, which means rock. And I think of Peter 1.6, that Peter in his own words says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Peter says this from his own experience. Remember, the very first time he met Jesus, he was Simon, that natural man. And Jesus saw him as Peter the rock the leader of the first century church. And that's the way He looks at us. He looks at us the same way. When we come to Him in all of our sin and all of our bad baggage that we have, He doesn't see us as that. He sees us as who we will become. He has a plan for each one of us. I think about my own life. When I came to the Lord, I came to Him as a prideful, young, self-serving man. But God saw potential in me and didn't give up on me, but patiently taught me and unfortunately disciplined. I experienced a lot of discipline. He changed me into a man that now desires to teach His Word, to counsel others. And I'm not near as self-seeking as I used to be. So He sees us as who we will become. So don't fight it. You need to figure out who you are in Christ and submit to it and save yourself a lot of pain. Some of you, God may be saying, you've been a lamb and now it's time to be a sheep. You were a babe in Christ and you need to grow up. Some of us, he says, you're a sheep and now you need to be a shepherd. Some of us, he may be leading you to have a Bible study in your home or to mentor a young man or a woman. He restored Peter to service and that's what he wants out of all of us. The fourth lesson I see here is that Jesus uses ordinary people. Acts 4.13 says, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. Why were they amazed? 
because they were uneducated, untrained men. They knew who these fishermen were. They knew their lives. They knew where they came from. They knew who they were. They were blue-collar, lowly, uneducated men. And they end up being in a significant role in an organization that has impacted the world more than anything else ever. Why was that? The reason was in the rest of Acts 4.13 that I didn't read. Let me read it again. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. And here it is. They began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. That was what amazed them. They may, well, That's what they saw. That's what, why they were different. That's what amazed them. Jesus has always used ordinary men and women. It was true in the beginning. It's true today. Now, I don't want to minimize going to Bible college or seminary. They didn't have them in the first century when the church began. Sitting at the feet of Jesus for three years was better than any seminary degree could have ever been. Formal training is great and necessary, but it's not a prerequisite to serving the Lord. There's a lot of great men and women who have served faithfully without ever having formal education. I thought of one that I respected a lot, and that's A.W. Tozer. He never has any, had any formal education. He wrote some of the best books I've ever read in the pursuit of God and pursuit of holiness. They're some of the best reads you'll ever read. And there are many other men like that. What is important is having been with Jesus. In other words, being educated by Jesus through faithful study and obedience to His Word, having a sincere love for the Lord, for His Word, for His people, and a willingness to serve where He has gifted you. And also a willingness to deny yourself. The gospel that Jesus preached was not an easy gospel, was it? Today the church wants to make it sound like it's, it's easy. All you got to do is to... Just confess Christ and life is, is, is good and easy to follow Christ. But in all honesty, what Jesus said was not user-friendly. It was actually threatening. Think about some of the things that Jesus said about being a follower. He said, count the cost. Put your hand to the plow and not look back. Enter the narrow gate. Take up your cross. Jesus doesn't offer a superficial makeover, but He wants us to submit what? Totally to Him. Completely. Totally and completely to Him. For what reason? For His glory. Peter did this, even knowing that he would someday be crucified and die a painful and shameful death. But Peter did this because he had gotten to know Jesus. He had come to love Jesus with all his heart, and he knew the power of the resurrection and the life to come. So he joyfully spent his remaining years serving the Lord. So the question is then, what about us? What's our story? Does it have an extreme makeover ending? It should have. It should have it should, we should be such a changed people that the people around us that knew us when we were in our old nature would be in awe. Instead of praising Ty Penneting or some design team or some contractor that remodels and makes over a house... God is the one to be praised for the restoration and transformation of a person. That's why it happened in the first place. That's why Peter's life was transformed. That's why our lives are transformed. That's the only reason it happens is to bring glory to God. That's the end of the lesson. It challenged me to really look at my life. And we see all the flaws of Peter, but we also see all the good things. And God doesn't focus on the flaws, does He? He wants to transform the flaws. He used Peter's personality, his rashness, his boldness. He used all that for him to become the man 
He was to become. And that's what He does in our lives. He changes us using our unique personalities and things we are. Now, sometimes He wants our personalities to change if they're sinful. But He also can use who we are, how we were born, to bring us and to mold us into the person He wants us to be. The challenge for us is to submit to it and to allow that to happen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for our time together this morning. Father, it is convicting each and every time we open your word and see how you um, worked in the life of Peter and, Father, how you desire to work in our lives. Father, may we submit to the power of the Holy Spirit in our own lives and may we allow you to transform us into the people that you want us to be. May we not quench the Holy Spirit, but may we work with him, Father, alongside the Holy Spirit, Father, to become those men and women that you want us to be in Christ. And we will give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.